1 Corinthians 12, 6. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Boy, I must, must confess that last verse hits rather close to home this morning. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We'll now read from the Belgic Article 28. Article 28, the obligations of church members. We believe that since this holy assembly and congregation is the gathering of those who are saved and there is no salvation apart from it, no one ought to withdraw from it content to be by himself, regardless of his status or condition. But all people are obliged to join and unite with it, keeping the unity of the church by submitting to its instruction and discipline, by bending their necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ, and by serving to build up one another according to the gifts God has given them as members of each other in the same body. And to preserve this unity more effectively, it is the duty of all believers, according to God's word, to separate themselves from those who do not belong to the church in order to join this assembly wherever God has established it, even if civil authorities and royal decrees forbid and death and physical punishment result. And so all who withdraw from the church or do not join it act contrary to God's ordinance. When we think of church membership, we have to ask this question, why has there been a decline in church membership? Why has there been this pull away from the church as it as we see that the the, the typical way is to walk away and why? I think there are several reasons for this. I think we have a church definition problem. What do I mean by that? What is a church definition problem? It's not just the place to hear a sermon, but that's what most of us think. And so this definition of the church, that it's the place just to gather and gather, to gather together and read and hear a sermon, makes it less fulsome. 
And so it's easier to walk away from what isn't that grand to begin with as a lecture hall or something like that. So we have a church definition problem. We also have an authority problem. We have an authority problem. We don't like being told what to do. We don't like having authorities placed over us. We don't like to submit. And we have an even bigger authority problem in that we don't submit to God's word. That's just the natural inclination of man. And so we have this authority problem. We also have an ignorance problem. So many don't understand what the Bible says about the church. We are ignorant to it. We don't know that we are called to join, as we saw last week. We, we struggle with that, and many just don't know what the church is and what it offers. There's, there's ignorance there. We also have a cultural problem, where church and Christians take the brunt of attacks from culture, and more frequently they are seen as antithetical. So what we see is a church that continuously stands more apart from the world itself, and so all the influences of the culture and society would say to to stay away from the church, to walk away from the church, and so we see that there's this cultural problem. We also have a, a generational problem. Many who grow up in church walk away from it later as they transition into adulthood because influences, whether a doubting faith, what they had learned in in college, things that they had been influenced with, press against them, and and so it's it, it's they doubt, and they might not have answers. And I would would warn the children here, especially the the high schoolers and those who look forward to college. That when you are presented with things that press your faith, things that can't be answered, the thing to do isn't to uh, continue to just Google the responses and think, well, what is this? You're not alone. The thing to do would be to, to talk to elders, to myself, to pastors, to, to go back to the sources and see, well, what is our answer to this? The reason I say that is so many find themselves influenced by outside pressures, and then they don't turn to the answers that we have, but rather continue to just progress away rather than seeking to understand. And so we see that there is a generational problem because of doubting faith. We see there's a generational problem due to work. We get jobs and we move away, and sadly, sometimes our jobs are more important to us than church membership. We also see problems in in relations, marital relations, things that aren't wrong per se, but we see those who grow up, who grew up in a good church, who had the right doctrines taught to them, but then they walked away. They walked away because of influences of spouses, different beliefs, those who didn't appreciate a certain style of worship. And I'll say this just as, as a personal note, I've seen this happen a lot. What I've seen happen a lot is those who grew up in in your churches who had the doctrine correctly taught to them often will be the ones to sort of negotiate the churches. And what I'm not meaning by this is that there isn't a give and take, that there isn't a settling upon a a good place for you and your spouse. But what I do mean when I say that is it, it isn't a negotiable, the quality of your church. So whatever church you do land on as you are seeking a church, it better be a true church, and it better be one that will strengthen your faith. And you, particularly as young men who are called to lead your families, don't allow that to be a place where you'll give. Don't allow that to be a place where you would say, I know this church will not ultimately be the strongest church and best church for my future family but I'm going to go there anyways just because I need to pacify the, the, the desires of my wife. 
And now again, I'm, I'm being careful. I'm not pressing that overly where there isn't a give and take, where there isn't a understanding. But you're the leaders and will be the leaders of your home. Don't place yourself in a position where this church may not be teaching what's wrong, but they may not be teaching all that's right. And that's a big difference. What I mean there is they might not be in error in what's from the pulpit or even the practices that they do, but are they giving you the full understanding of God's word? Are they giving you the full understanding of theology, lacking the fulsome expression of of God's word is very dangerous. So we don't just weigh churches, and I see this too all the time. Well, nothing's said there that's wrong. Nothing's sinful. That's a, a hard, hardly a grand acknowledgement of a church. Well, they're at least not doing something wrong. No. How are they doing it well? What are they preaching? And so we, we have that, and we also have part of this, this generational problem and entertainment problem entertainment problem where we come in our society to be entertained by almost everything. Our attention spans progressively get shorter and shorter. We find it very difficult to sit through a worship service now, and a lot of this is just what we are inundated with. You have social media that you scroll through as quickly as you can, videos, lights, flashes, news articles. We have tweets and things that can't be longer than what is just amounts to a few sentences. Our attention spans are so short, and so to come to church and now sit and listen to a worship service, or even outside of church to attend Bible studies, to to give of your time and volunteer your time and attentions. That all takes much discipline, and that's difficult. And so we are not entertained there, and so we have an entertainment problem. All this amounts to why we see so many depart from the church. That's probably not news to anyone. We're probably all aware of these situations in this setting. And yet, what is the response? Well, we see it. We see it in the Belgic We see it as we'll look to today in two statements. We're going to look at basically two thematic statements, two kind of commands. They're in your your handout. The first is, since there is no salvation apart from the church, join it and don't withdraw. Since there is no salvation apart from the church, join it and don't withdraw. Article 28 of the Belgic makes a rather startling claim. It says, We believe since this holy assembly and congregation is the gathering of those who are saved and there is no salvation apart from it, no one ought to withdraw from it. That is a strong statement. And if you were to think to yourself, how would I defend that? If someone were to ask you, is there really no salvation outside the church, what would you say? I'm guessing many of us are thinking, how would I say that? Does that mean you can't be saved if you're not a member of a church? What is, what is this saying? Can we even say that? Well, first, this article is not saying that church membership is what saves. It's not the church membership that saves. It's the blood of Christ. It's faith in him. That is what saves. Also, this article is not saying that in every case, one must formally join a church and be baptized to be saved, as if you don't have that requirement, you will not be let into heaven. That is not the case either. You can think of the thief on the cross. You can think of infants who die before being baptized. Are they saved? And we would say most assuredly, yes, they are, though they were not baptized. Though they did not possess that formal membership, we do not deny that they are saved. See, the Belgic is reproducing here an ancient church doctrine, a church doctrine that said you cannot have God as your father without your church as your mother. And that came to be understood that there is no salvation apart from the church. 
That's what the Belgic is restating, an ancient church doctrine. The Westminster Confession of Faith from, a, from our brothers and sisters in the Presbyterian churches have the same teaching, but they expand upon it. It was written later. They clarify it a bit. And Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25.2, it says that out of the church there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. And so what the Westminster is saying, it's clarifying this. It's saying that ordinarily, outside the church, there is no salvation, making allowance for the the type of situation, we'll just say, the the castaway on a deserted island. He has a Bible that was in the plane that crashed there. He reads this Bible. He professes faith. He cannot join a church formally. Does that mean he's not saved? Of course not. It means he is saved. Well, you see, part of that distinction the ordinariness of it, is that there are circumstances that inhibit him from joining a church, and yet he can still be saved because of that. The danger begins to come in when it is those who are near true churches who will not join them. And I'm not going to make statements that there can be no salvation in these people's hearts, but what the Belgic is saying is that that is evidence of rather either, at at best, a very weak faith, Or, as the Belgic would say, no faith at all. Because there's no desire to join the bride of Christ to which you should be a part. And so I'm not saying we overstate and say there cannot be any salvation outside of the church, but there is no ordinary salvation. The way of salvation, the normal way of salvation, is tied to the church. The church is the vehicle of salvation itself. We saw last time that it was commissioned. It was commissioned to be the peace of salvation. Those who would bring the message of salvation, administer the means of grace. What are means of grace? Means of grace are those things that nourish and strengthen your faith. It's the preaching of God's word and the sacraments. This is what the church does. Without the church, there would be no message of salvation. Without the church, there's no family of salvation to uphold and be there. Without the church, there's no oversight of the message of salvation. So without the church, we could say it this way, there's no salvation. The church is the commissioned vehicle of God, the body of God, to spread salvation. Salvation is the church's domain. Salvation is the church's. And outside of the true church, then, there is no ordinary way of salvation. God chooses to administer the message of of salvation through the church. He's given it the keys, the officers, all of these things of salvation. And so those who separate from the true church jeopardize it. Those who separate from the true church place themselves apart from the body of Christ. You know, there's there's nothing in the Bible that legitimizes a non-fellowshipping Christian a non-fellowshipping covenantal member. That's oxymoronic. A covenantal member is a fellowshipping member. You cannot be part of the covenant without being joined to each other. This again shows that outside of that, how can there be a true faith? A true faith that would say, I claim Christ, but not his family. You know, you hear that statement, when you marry your spouse, you marry their family too. It's true. They become your family. You cannot marry Christ, as it were, and not have the family. And to show no love to his family is to show no love to Christ. This is what Christ says, to, re- to reject the church is to reject me. Thus we see the strong statements, you cannot have God as your father without the church as your mother This is a high ecclesiology, ecclesiology, high church. 
we give it its proper weight and authority. And this is important because the reformers were being, were being, the, the argument against reformers was that they, they're seeking to destroy the church. They don't have a high understanding of the church, but that's not the case. Romans 10, 14 to 17 illustrates this well. It says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have ne- never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? One does not just become a preacher of the gospel. He must be sent. That's what we see in the church. The, the church sends the preachers. Salvation belongs to the church, to the gospel. And no one can call on God without hearing. No one can hear without preaching. And no one can preach without that church sending. And so we see... This is, since salvation belongs to the church, since there is no ordinary salvation apart from it, join it and don't withdraw. That's what we're, we see, as we see in the Bible, we see that in the Belgic. Our second thematic statement, sort of, sort of a command, but this is, is more of explanation. So our second point is, seeking the fellowship of true believers may require separation from false churches and civil disobedience. This is directly from the Belgic. I'm going to say that again. Seeking the fellowship of true believers may require separation from false churches and civil disobedience. Why? Why is it saying what it does in the Belgic about needing to separate from those who are not true believers? It's talking about false churches. Understand the situation when the Belgic was written. Understand that at that time there was one church, and it was a state-supported church that had all of that authority behind it. And to be part of a true church meant to separate from what was considered by them the only true church, which the Reformers saw was indeed a false church. And the statement in the Belgic becomes that much more powerful and poignant when you realize they stood to lose almost everything by separating from the Church of Rome to join this Protestant Reformation group that was claiming to be the true church. They stand... They stood to lose even their lives. Guido de Bray, who wrote the Belgic Confession, was martyred. He very literally put to practice the words that he began his letter to the king when he sent the Belgic to him, that they would put their, their lives at stake. They'd be ready to be burned at the stake for this. And he did give of his life. That's what was being faced there. That's how important it is to join a true church. And that's why I say, you, you, you see how foolish it is to attend a church that isn't as pure, to, to go to one that you know has glaring deficiencies in what's most important. No, the true church is what strengthens your very faith. Without it, what, what do you do? Without it, where are you? And that's why, again, I impress upon us that importance to seek the true church, to hold to it, to not let... I said this somewhat last time, but I'm going to remind it again because it's a very pressing problem in the church today to not let things that are secondary or or tertiary, there's like two, three, four steps away from what's important. Such things as like, well, I, I really like that church. The preaching is solid. The church fellowships, but the music, and I bring it there because that's, that's just such a repeated problem, but the, the music isn't the style I like. And that's where you say, you need, you need to gain some more wisdom to understand that music is vitally important to our worship. But the form of it is less so important to the preaching of God's word, to the fellowship of the saints, to the love that that body shows, to their, their strength and preaching of doctrine and what is true. 
So we need to be willing to separate our entertainment aspects to join what is the true and pure church. That's a distinction we'll get to later between a more pure and a less pure church. Here we just see the the drawing the line. There's false churches and true churches. You must join a true church. Fellowship with it. We need the church. We need its strength. Salvation comes through faith in Christ. But a healthy faith will find churches to join. And your faith will become that much stronger by joining a true church and becoming full, healthy members of it. That's just the truth. A good church, a pure church, one that is doing what is right, will strengthen your faith as you partake in faith. That's a promise from God. We do all of ourselves a disservice. We do our family a disservice by knowingly placing them in inferior positions where their faith won't be as strengthened to highlight what is a secondary matter. That's not wise. And and young people, high schoolers, I'm, I'm speaking especially to you. You are that generation, that next generation, and what will you do? This isn't, this isn't me and my plea that you'll stay here. Well, I guess it kind of is. I can say that. Stay here. We love you. Don't leave. But it isn't that plea that, okay, let's just stay home and stay here. It's a plea that wherever you would be, you would find a good, true church. That you wouldn't, you wouldn't mortgage your spiritual and faith future for what doesn't matter. We see that we need the church in so many ways. I want you to turn to Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. Here we read what's been given to the church, the blessings we have in the church. Read it from Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What a strong statement. What a strong statement of the church and what it does and how it grows into a mature manhood. And that's what's so lacking in the churches today. The churches of our context and situation is that maturity, that mature manhood, that understanding, an understanding of a faith that isn't just a heartfelt faith, that's the most important, a heartfelt faith, but a step beyond that, a heartfelt faith that, it, that, that presses on to maturity and understanding and wisdom. You know, one of the qualifications of office bearers is that they would not be a new Christian, that they would not be tempted to fall as they so quickly are placed in that position of authority. There is understanding that with a longevity of faith and of a healthy faith comes that, that discernment, discipline, strength, understanding, maturity. Heartfelt loving Christians is the most important. But what's sad is to have a body of only heartfelt loving Christians that don't progress on to a maturity and understanding of God's word, understanding of how to conduct itself 
an understanding of how to respond to situations. See, that's wisdom. Wisdom takes time. Wisdom takes formation by preaching, by prayer, by what is a good church, by what are good elders, pastors, and deacons who minister. That's what it takes. You're not going to find, or generally speaking, you're not going to find a very mature, strong Christian who has isolated him or herself from the church. They are adrift, tossed around. This passage from Ephesians shows that God gave the church leaders and teachers to equip and build the church. It shows in verse 13 that the church enables all believers to become a unified body that grows what? That grows in what? More and more like Christ. We're here in the process of growing Christ-like people, Christ-like Christians. And when you want to grow like Christ, you better join his body, or it's not going to happen. You better be faithful in it, or it won't happen. These are literally the means that God gave you to grow in your faith. Verse 14 shows that the church gives us knowledge and doctrine that protect us from error, and that's so important. Every one of us, myself included, I put myself probably first and foremost here, would be awash adrift a sea of problems and heresies were it not for what we have in the church and those who train and mold. If you were by yourself in isolation to read God's word, it's clear enough for you to understand the central tenet of salvation. But it takes a community of faith and the church to properly guard and fence and interpret God's word. There would be many errors that we all would have, that I myself would have, if it wasn't for what the church has done through hundreds and hundreds of years. We are given a profound deposit of wisdom in our forms and confessions, our creeds, these things that interpret God's word, that show this is what the saints in the church have done to interpret God's word. Without them... What would we do? How many errors would we be afflicted with? Verses 15 and 16 show that the church is the goal and the source of the church's growth. That Christ, I should say. That Christ is the goal and source of the church's growth. So we see that we are to have fellowship with true believers. But we also see a separation from false churches, the Belgic says, and to preserve this unity more effectively. It is the duty of all believers, according to God's word, to separate themselves from those who don't belong to the church in order to join this assembly wherever God has established it. We've already talked about that, that necessity during that day and age. But this also, as you see, can take civil disobedience. It's interesting that the Belgic points that out, but again, understanding their context, you see why this was the church that was supported by the state. The church in that day had the full support, or in most places, a full support of the state behind them, in which they could exercise they could exercise the executions, they could bring about the power of the government to bear, and so to these Christians, what would you do? You are called to disobey in that way. You see, our devotion to Christ is greater than our devotion to civil authorities. Our devotion to Christ is greater than our devotion to civil authorities. That does not mean we dishonor our authorities. It means we honor them correctly. It means where they go, where God's word does not, we disobey them. It means where they would inhibit, where they would would cause a problem and a roadblock into the true function of the church. They don't have that authority. They don't have that right. And so we recognize that we follow them that we don't follow them, I should say. We follow 
God. We follow Him. And we need to know this as our nation becomes more opposed to the church as a whole. Are we going to be in our generation and our lifetimes called to disobey the civil government? To stay united to a true church? It might happen. So we should understand that and know that. Your obligation is first to the true church before it's to your nation. For it's to your civil authorities. And that's not to recognize Romans 13, but I do want to give a, a corrective measure. And I say this with, with much caution. And I say this and would qualify this immensely. I don't want anyone here to take this out of context. But this past pandemic, we lost something. Perhaps not, and I wouldn't say our church specifically or even our federation as a whole necessarily, but if I could speak of the broader evangelical church, we lost something. Many Christians over-argued a responsibility and the authority that we give to civil authorities in regards to worship. Here's what I mean. What I'm not actually critiquing here, I have my own thoughts on this, but when I, I wouldn't say this from the pulpit. I'm not critiquing what churches did and how long they closed and that kind of thing. But what I am doing from the Belgic is saying many churches used as their reasoning for this Romans 13 and the submission to governing authorities. There's an appropriate usage of that in church settings. Yet Romans 13, and I saw it over-argued too much to just leave it there, was over-argued to the point where it was if they say that the church can't gather, then the church can't gather, period. And that's not the case. You see... As the Belgic isn't arguing that point per se, but it's a necessary deduction. If we are called to separate from a false church, even if that means going against governing decrees, which is what the Belgic is saying, then that must also mean the true church must also go against government decrees when those decrees inhibit the church from acting as the true church. Why can I say that? Because the mission of the church the, the job of the church, the work of the church is salvation. Do we put that on hold for pandemics? Do we put that on hold for civil authorities? We do not. And again, elders, using their authority, can decide to suspend worship for a time for whatever reason. And I'm not, again, specifically critiquing the longevity or how quickly churches should or shouldn't have opened talking about the very the argument there and the argument is not that when the civil government tells the church that they have to suspend all worship that that necessarily means the church is beholden to that i'd qualify it i'd be careful in how i say it there are situations and circumstances where even civil authorities exercising their right authority can to degrees inhibit that what were to happen if there was a a shooter coming in here let's say and the civil authorities exercised its rightful authority by suspending worship to, to deal with this problem. You know, we have to use wisdom in this. We have to understand that there is overlap in some ways, but we can't just sell the whole truth. As if, well, the civil government has more authority over the true worship and doctrine of the church than the church does? No, it doesn't. I say this, again, not to make COVID, which has sort of passed us a new hot-button topic again. No, I say it so we would learn. So that we would learn as the church, if we were to face persecutions and further problems, that the, the authority of the church does not bow in worship to the authority of the civil government. It does not bow to the civil government in its conducting of the Great Commission. We have a greater authority in Christ. He's given it to the church. And so as we conclude, what are we to do? How are we to see this? We are to value your membership, first of all. Value it. 
Look at what Ephesians 4 says and all the things given to you. This is the place where you grow in your faith. Second, prioritize your membership. Prioritize it. Don't let work or sports or entertainment unduly interfere with your church membership. And I don't simply mean attendance of worship. I do mean that. But I don't mean that alone. Being fulsome members of the church is more than just being here for worship. It's that full-orbed life. Volunteering, being a part of committees, being part of the, the work of the church, doing the things of the church, being fellowshipping members with each other. That includes things like having people over. That includes things like fellowshipping, praying for others. All these things are part of that. So prioritize your membership. And understand, third, understand your membership. Understand to what you belong. You belong to the body of Christ, and it's through the church that we receive access to our Savior. Do not reject this truth. We know that Christ is our body. He's our head. We follow him no matter the cost. That's really what all this boils down to, what membership in the church means. Follow Christ at all costs. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we bring before you the the desire of our own hearts to be true members of your church. And we pray that you would be with not only our church, but the other churches, the other denominations, federations, the the non-denominational churches. We pray that you would be with them all, that there would be a vitality and health to the church, that they would be true and pure, and that the Christians, members there, would stand firm and would hold to you first and foremost. We pray this in Jesus' name.